every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning from me, Peter Lewis. We're creeping towards the end of the week. It's Thursday, the 10th of August, and welcome to my podcast, Money Talk. You can find this program on Substack, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Just search for Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Also, please take a look at my Facebook page. It's the same name, Peter Lewis Money Talk. And this podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, China's consumer prices have fallen for the first time in two years on an annual basis, but the picture has improved on a monthly basis. China's consumer price index dropped by 0.3% year-on-year in July. That's the first decrease since February 2021 after registering no change a month earlier and missing market estimates of a 0.4% fall. On a monthly basis, consumer prices unexpectedly rose by 0.2%, beating forecasts of a 0.1% decrease and marking the first rise in six months. China's producer price index, which measures the prices of goods as they leave the factory gate, fell 4.4% year-on-year in July. That's worse than market forecasts and follows a 5.4% drop in the prior month, which was the steepest decrease since December 2015. And it was the 10th consecutive month of producer deflation, but the smallest deflation in three months. President Joe Biden has issued an executive order banning U.S. investment into quantum computing, advanced chips and artificial intelligence sectors in China to ensure the Chinese military doesn't benefit from American technology and capital. The order will largely affect private equity and venture capital firms, as well as U.S. investors in joint ventures and financing arrangements with Chinese groups. It will also require firms to inform the government of investments into the three sectors, even in cases where the prohibitions will not apply. Cathay Pacific has recorded its biggest first half profit since 2010, as the Hong Kong flag carrier, which is operating only at half of its pre-pandemic passenger capacity, continues to increase flights. Cathay posted a profit of four and a quarter billion Hong Kong dollars for the first half of 2023, ending three years of consecutive losses. And it was a strong rebound from the 5 billion Hong Kong dollar loss racked up in the same period last year. The airline carried 7.8 million passengers in the first half, up 2,200% compared with the same period last year. On today's programme, I'm joined by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and James Wong, Chief Executive Officer at Cathasia Securities. With a view from Taiwan is Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group. Wall Street's main indices closed in the red on Wednesday as investors awaited the U.S. inflation report due later today for clues about the Federal Reserve's next move and the future path of interest rates. Economists expect the inflation gauge rose 3.3% in July. The S&P 500 shed 0.7% to 4,468. The Dow lost 191 points, that's half a percent, to finish at 35,123. The Nasdaq Composite slipped 1.2% to 13,722, closing below its 50-day moving average for the first time since early March. And NVIDIA, which has more than tripled this year amid the artificial intelligence frenzy, slipped almost 5%. 
Crude oil has hit a nine-month high. Brent, which is the global benchmark, rose 1.6% to $87.55 per barrel. That's the highest since mid-April. And European natural gas prices have surged to a five-month high. They jumped more than 35% on Wednesday, triggered by reports that workers at important LNG plants in Australia were planning strike action, disrupting supplies. The EU has become increasingly reliant on global seaborne cargoes of LNG to replace Russian supplies cut off since the war in Ukraine. Chinese stocks slid for the third straight session as investors reacted to data showing China's consumer inflation declined for the first time in more than two years. The Shanghai Composite was down half a percent at 3,244. In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng recovered from losses in the morning session to close with gains of 62 points, or a third of a percent, at 19,246. Real estate developer Country Garden and its property management affiliate Country Garden Services extended losses from the prior session after Moody's downgraded the developer further into junk territory after the company missed coupon payments on two of its US dollar bonds. Shares of Country Garden dropped 1.8% after tumbling 14.4% on Tuesday. Country Garden's services slipped 1.6%, extending the previous day's slide of 9.7%. Futures markets are projecting that the Hang Seng is going to lose yesterday's gains. Looks like it's going to open about 175 points lower. That's about 0.9%, with the index starting the day at about 19,070. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. I'd like to welcome our Thursday morning guests on the phone from London. We have Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, our regular Thursday commentator. Morning, Andrew. Good morning. And also with us, James Wong, who is Chief Executive Officer at Cathasia Securities. He's here in Hong Kong. Morning, James. Good morning, Peter. Uh, let's start with the uh, the data from uh, China on inflation. China's consumer prices, they fell for the first time in two years on an annual basis, but they did manage to climb on a monthly basis. China's consumer price index dropped by a third of a percent year on year in July. That's the first decrease since February 2021 after registering no change a month earlier and missing market estimates of a 0.4% fall. The cost of food fell 1.7% after rising in in the prior 15 months, prices of pork fell at a much faster rate of minus 26% last month compared with a decline of minus 7.2% in June. Meanwhile, non-food prices were flat after falling 0.6% previously. And on a monthly basis, consumer prices unexpectedly rose by 0.2%. That beats forecasts of a 0.1% decrease and marks the first rise in six months. Core consumer prices, which exclude prices of food and energy, increased 0.8%. 8% year on year. That's the most since January after a 0.4% uh, gain in June. Andrew, I wonder if I can uh, kick off with you and ask you, this is about the first time now since November 2020 that both consumer and producer prices registered contraction. So is China in deflation? Well, the answer is, is a sound and loud yes, <clears throat> because if I take by deflation, meaning either falling, continuously falling, or at least at the very least negative prices. In the case of the producer index, we had now 10 months continuously of negative numbers. Not all of them uh, growing, so in other words, we don't have an acceleration in the deflation. But on the producer side, 
very soon we would have had a full year of deflation. Deflation actually having its proper proper negative implication. In other words, prices are sub they are contracting. In the case of the CPI, we had about 10 months now of uh, inflation numbers that were less than 2%. That was we had 1.4, 1.8, 1.7, occasionally below 1%, but not negative. Mm. So in a strict sense, China doesn't have a deflation on the CPI, but most definitely has a deflation on the PPI. I'm sorry, Peter, you asked me a quantitative answer and you got an incredibly boring quantitative reply. Well, no, I'm interested because there's been a lot of talk about this, hasn't there, about whether China was going to slip into deflation. The government uh, is saying it's not uh, deflation and doesn't really want to talk about it. Other people are saying it is. I, I suppose the question is, though, is this the real damaging type of deflationary spiral that we saw maybe in Japan? Japan in the early 1990s, or is this different? It hasn't yet got to the point where, um, you know, people are cutting back on spending, which is driving prices even lower, causing job losses. Have have we reached that type of deflationary spiral yet, or is this different? Well, coldly, if we were to look at simply what has happened in the uh, GDP performance of China, it has not been decelerating. In fact, closing our eyes and gritting our teeth we are looking at perhaps a 5% GDP growth. So if you have a big economy that grows at 5% with a very low level of inflation, wow, I thought this was Goldilocks. I thought this well, that's what, what I thought. Americans it's supposed to be good, isn't it? I've been dreaming. It's supposed to be <laughs> so good. So my reaction is, 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 is almost to have a, a Jewish mother reaction. <laughs> my life already. What's your problem? <laughs> <laughs> that's, what, that's what I was trying to get at. Is this a problem? Because surely if, um, if food prices are going down, for example, that's a good thing, isn't it? Yes, and uh, the food prices are particularly sensitive uh, in China. We still don't know exactly how much food accounts for the CPI. Uh, Bloomberg has an estimate of about 30%, which is quite high and it's quite normal for economies that still have a relatively per capita income. So, Peter, we agree. China doesn't have a problem. Okay, next one now. Okay, well, James, let me get your thoughts on this. Do you do you agree? Um, it, it, well, first of all, technically, is China in deflation? But secondly, um, does it matter? Is it a problem? From the market's reaction, I don't think it's really a problem. It's not really as scary as, scary as the uh, import-export numbers that were released Monday. And uh, you, uh, I think our, the uh, offshore yuan is a perfect indicator of how the world sees uh, the uh, economic background or backdrop of China is going towards. And uh, it, the, the, the CMI... Uh, the the CNH was not really reacting to the news of a uh, decreasing inflation or disinflation or whatever the Chinese authorities want to call this, and uh, the the uh, but uh, we we can not argue with the fact that the uh, the offshore yuan is heading to a uh, weaker level once again. It was about seven point two eight five five back in uh, the worst days of July, and then uh, it, it kind of got back up better uh, with all the policies and the talk of uh, policies, uh, stimulus policies being released, and uh, then it became weaker again. So last week, we uh, the two weeks ago, we have the best uh, CMI, uh, best uh, CNH uh, at about 7.12, 
And then last week, the best uh, uh, places for CNH was, was about 7.15. And now we're back. Yesterday was back to about 7.24. And now we're at 7.22. I think it's heading towards the worst level of the year, which is 7.2855. And once you got there, it's not really that far from the worst level of last year, which is 7.3. I think it's going to break 7.3 sooner or later because, uh, yeah, there is a, a deceleration or, or a, reduce, a re- re- reduction in, in inflation, or, and uh, there is very little uh, clarity in how the Chinese government is going to handle this uh, this down cycle. I think people are more concerned about the fact that uh, the, the Chinese society or Chinese economy has been uh, in high-speed growth for the past decade and a half. And this might be the first non-event-driven uh, down cycle for the economy uh, in all these months, uh, in all these years. And uh, people are are speculating that the Chinese government is going to uh, have uh, a series of uh, stimulus packages and uh, it looks like uh, the best word to describe the stimuluses that we've got so far is what uh, JP Morgan uh, Morgan Stanley put in their report saying it's being recommended and uh, it's, it's been and sorry what's what, what, what sorry James it, it was what the Chinese government might be having a, a very high threshold for the economy to go through a down cycle naturally Mm. So that might not be what the market is, uh, is prone to. But Morgan Stanley, who in that report, they also downgraded China, didn't they? They are uh, um, from uh, from overweight, I think, to a more neutral level. So they're not that positive on the Chinese markets. No, no, they're not. They're not. Yeah, they downgrade the, the China. They downgrade also the uh, the Chinese real estate uh, uh, mark, uh, uh, sector. And then after their research department published that report, uh, they try to place a uh, do, re, they try to uh, or coordinate a uh, stock placing deal for Country Garden, which didn't go so well. So the deal went off. So yeah, I think they they pretty uh, Morgan Stanley knows what's going on, and uh, I think that represents uh, the. Uh, uh, international investors uh, that are more previously long China, which which isn't much right now. And, and I think the, the most crowded trades in the world of uh, hedge funds is still long U.S., uh, long part Japan and short China. Uh, I don't think that has changed. Okay. Well, we'll get on to that uh, in a moment. Andrew, what, what happens next now? Is it important that the government does do something to make sure that um, Chinese economy doesn't slip into a deflationary spiral? Or could it be more relaxed on the basis that at least month on month, inflation was increasing? And also, you know, they could take a relaxed view, couldn't they, about uh, the decline in food prices on the basis that maybe that's, you know, not such a, a bad thing? Or do they need to act now and, te- you know, the fact that there is no inflation gives them more room to maybe do things on the policy side? Yeah, well, I take the safe road, uh, Peter, here, because I'm not going to suggest anything. I will simply say about two weeks ago, we had the famous three individual uh, policy, uh, let's say, initiatives, okay, uh, separately laid out. One was specifically on consumer, and the other one was, if I remember well, 21 specific points for the economy in general, and these were simply headlines. Mm-hmm. Okay, in other words, we're going to do something to increase, uh, uh, you know, 
the, the production of noodles. I'm just making this up. Okay, well, we are still waiting to hear what are the actual policy measures. In other words, they were extremely long on description and extremely short on actual policies, plus my favorite expression, show me the money. I want to see the money on the table. So uh, as an outside observer, I will say I'm waiting for the Chinese government to fulfill their promises by showing me exactly what they're planning to do. I have the list in front of me and I'm waiting. Mm. Are they maybe constrained then, first of all, by the weaker yuan that James was talking about just there? That that restricts a little bit there what the uh, the People Bank, Bank of China can do, because obviously they don't want to see the yuan slide and start triggering capital flight. And also, are they constrained on the fiscal side because of the financial pressures that many local governments are facing? Yeah. Uh, looking at the overall fiscal situation in China has always perplexed me. Uh, I, I think I've got my arms around it, but not fully. <clears throat> the fiscal deficit, if you take simply only the central government, has never been uh, significantly above 10%. I, I'll stand to be corrected here. Okay, this is my own, my own estimates. And that's absolutely peanuts. In other words, they can afford to easily double that because for a very, very simple reason. Look at Japan. Countries that have got a large external surplus are, can easily afford to have domestic deficits. Mm-hmm. It is as really simple as that. So in other words, yes, they can afford to borrow more money. Now, if we add in the loans of the local authorities, so in other words, we have a genuine national debt situation, then, uh, yeah, there will be an additional constraint. But they have been incredibly reluctant to do anything really physically, sorry, uh, uh, fiscally uh, significant and important. And the People's Bank of China idea of interest rate policy has always been very, very slow and very, very small. We're Mm. talking all the time of a few basis points, not even the 25. So there is a reluctance, in fact, for me unjustified, because both the external and the internal situation merits uh, loose fiscal policy. Of course, they look what has happened to the states into the European Union following COVID, and they don't want to repeat this. But they've got completely different set of situations there. So if they're, in effect, what you're saying is if they're borrowing in their own currency, which which they are, they have a current account surplus, they can afford yes. to increase uh, the, their debt. Absolutely. So the reason why it's Absolutely. not happening is basically it must be f- sh- for sure a policy choice that they don't want to, go and, to Absolutely. go and do that. And it's not, not- don't forget, this is not a criticism of Chinese policymakers. During COVID, they did effectively nothing. I mean, look at the Europeans and the Americans. They just poured money. Look at Hong Kong. Okay, we just received, I think, the third installment of a handout of 2,000 Hong Kong dollars per person, per ID holder. Mm. I mean, this, is, this is real money on the table. And the Chinese never did anything, anything near that. So, you know, my reaction is, come on, guys. You know, you didn't you didn't create a huge fiscal deficit during COVID. Well, now that's the time, okay, to let it. But then um, giving advice to a government, which is really 
not what I get paid for. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, James, let me ask you, why won't the government do something? Why won't they maybe cut interest rates, cut the triple R? As, as um, Andrew said, they can afford it. They can afford to borrow more money because they're borrowing in their own currency. Why won't they do it? Is it maybe, you know, if we listen to some <clears throat> of Xi Jinping's speeches, it seems to suggest that this is a real policy choice. They've got a tolerance now for a weaker economy and um, its, uh, its priorities are other things like improving innovation and looking after national security rather than the uh, rather than economic growth yeah i think that the problem is uh, that there are two reasons first of all they've learned the lesson from the 2008 uh, capital injection into the market that was four trillion yuan injected in uh, in uh, uh, infrastructure spendings uh, and uh, uh, fixed assets investments and all those money basically uh, flew into the real estate markets, and uh, the, uh, the Chinese real estate market has had the best 10 years after that. And I think that's uh, not something the Chinese authorities want to see at this point because mm. the uh, real estate market price has been uh, uh, modest uh, for the past two years, but uh, it's not still it's not that low, and uh, they they don't want another. Uh, speculative market for the realistic market uh, prices anytime soon, I think. And uh, the second lesson, uh, the second reason that they're not doing this is uh, I think they observed that there is a deficiency uh, in uh, passing this extra liquidity that the uh, central government is issuing to the uh, real economy. Because when we look at M1 and M2 in China, you can see there is a huge difference between the two. So in a way, there is not. it's not the case that there is no liquidity in the market or in the economy. It's just not uh, going to the real economy, the sectors. It's not going to the SMEs. It's not going to the, the businesses or persons who want to borrow loans, uh, so that's that's a real problem. So that uh, so that's why I think the Chinese authorities are uh, being reluctant uh, at uh, just printing out more money because they know it's not going to be uh, flowing down to the uh, lower uh, tiers of the economy, the the, the real uh, ultimate beneficial owners of the economy. So that's why they they are being prudent. Is there a point at which they do become more concerned about the economy? I mean, you mentioned earlier the Chinese trade data, which you described as scary. I mean, it certainly was scary, wasn't it? There was a big slump in both exports um, and imports, suggesting not just weak external demand, but weak domestic demand as well. Yeah, I think the the, the time that they will become... uh, uh, really concerned is when the, there is a systematic risk. And right now, I think the systematic risk uh, only implies to the real estate uh, sector. Uh, when the, the real estate prices are dropping so much to the point that the, the, uh, the collateral value, which is based on the real estate uh, properties, are starting to collapse, and then that might uh, go into a uh, a, uh, a systematic risk. Then that's that's I think that's when the, the Chinese government is gonna really do something about uh, the economy. But right now, I don't. I I, I think there are scattered cases of uh, uh, realistic companies uh, might have liquidity issues, short-term liquidity issues, but it's not a widespread. Uh, uh, 
uh, collateral uh, devaluation but yet. Is so it, I think they, they still, they're still going to hold their Is orders. it about to get more widespread? How big a problem is what's going on with Country Garden? It's reportedly missed now two coupon payments um, over the weekend on $500, uh, $500 million of, of uh, US dollar debt. Um, Country Garden was at one time the biggest property developer by, by sales. I don't think it is anymore these days, but presumably a, a, a default by Country Garden could be as big as, if not bigger than, what Evergrande. What has happened to Evergrande? How big a problem is this? Yeah, I think I think they are fundamentally different because Evergrande is uh, notorious in having a maintaining a very high leverage uh, through from uh, 2016 through 2000, basically 2020. So they never stopped uh, leveraging. But Country Garden, I think they are uh, they were uh, aware of their leverage and they were trying to lower their leverage before 2020. So the, I think the the, the reason that uh, they are having uh, liquidity issues is because uh, obviously the Morgan Stanley failed them uh, in in raising money. But again, that's not a lot of money. Uh, some of its peers also uh, uh, paid the price of diluting their own shares by 17%, only to raise about 1.7 uh, billion Hong Kong dollars. It's, it's really not that much, but, uh, but uh, we can see that even for the, the top-tier uh, real estate companies uh, there might be liquidity issues so um i i really don't know how widespread this this problem is uh country garden still have one about 27 days uh, left in its uh, grace period i truly hope that he uh, the country garden can solve this problem so andrew let me get your thoughts on that then the property sector how, how big an issue is um a potential default by country garden which was at one time the china's biggest uh, property developer and what is it signaling about the state of the property market on the mainland well, there are two inter interrelated reactions. One is, <clears throat> should the government decide that uh, the private sector should sort itself out, despite the fact that uh, comments have been made that they are going to be supported, they are going to return to the fold and so on, then the concern of any property, significant property default in China has always been, of course, the potential impact on the local authorities that in one way or another have been involved through the sale of land or even to the sale of, of property. So uh, an Evergrande or a country garden could easily become a fiscal issue uh, should it looks as if that in addition to the actual individual companies and individual investors, this may drag in somebody else. And I'm afraid I'm going to give you the usual boring reply, and that is, should the Chinese government decide that they will not want to see that, they definitely have the money to prevent it. Again, mm -hmm. we're going back, in fact, to an expansion of fiscal deficit. So it is not exactly a Nobel Prize winning uh, reply to that, but uh, at the time that Evergrande was uh, literally teetering at uh, the level of... Uh, of, of default, uh, the government did make uh, sufficient soothing sounds, although, to the best of my knowledge, if I remember well, there was no direct offer of help, except the banks were always instructed. Now they have more, more than ever been instructed to take it easy, mm. with, uh, to be a little bit more lax with uh, real estate loans. So are we edging those somehow to closer to some sort of government bailout of, of these companies? Is that going to be the only thing left, really, that's going to try and stabilise the property market? 
Well, at, at the stage that we are now, and given the, the, the very significant concern of the government going forward to a substantial GDP growth, and also not anything that could touch the only real wealth-making and stroke uh, most significant portfolio assets of the average Chinese family, which is, of course, their property, okay, then uh, that could immediately devolve back into a political problem and not a policy problem. Mm. Okay, let me get your thoughts on another piece of news uh, just out this morning. President Joe Biden has issued an executive order banning U.S. investments into quantum computing, advanced chips and artificial intelligence sectors in China. The order will largely affect private equity and venture capital firms, as well as U.S. investors in joint ventures and financing arrangements with Chinese groups. It will also require firms to inform the government of investments into the three sectors, even in cases where the prohibitions will not apply. Andrew, let me ask you first for your thoughts on that. I mean, it's been expected, hasn't it? But is it maybe a more narrow than people were fearing at first? Yeah, it's interesting because quantum computing, although it, it seems to be incredibly, let's say, promising, it is still apparently, my reading, is still a long, long way of being a realistic proposal. Although, of course, you want to catch it. You want to catch it early. And also, my second comment is, is well, this is very much fit for tap. In other words, if I was to look at the pre-existing list of sectors in China where uh, foreign capital was a no-no, such as uh, in publication, such, such as most definitely in anything remotely smelling of, uh, of, uh, of, of defense, and the list is much longer than that, then the United States is not the first government to say something about not investing in China. Now, I suspect they have perhaps overdid it in terms of PR, in the sense of there seems to be, every morning I look up and there is one more restriction of something that uh, can be or cannot be invested in China. And uh, it would be very nice if you just make your list. You say, that's the list, and uh, forget it about it. Then we move on. And incidentally, we also know that these restrictions will take place only after about a year of mm. initial consultations. In other words, you may have now a rush developing to invest now and worry about it later. I'm not, I'm not at all for uh, these kind of restrictions unless they are very, very specific on issues of defense. Very specific on issues of defense. Okay, but uh, voice chips for Barbie dolls is not exactly very high on our <laughs> level of, uh, of, of defense of defense of the realm. Okay, um, this is a trivial coin. I'm sorry, that was, that was uncalled for. But I knew you was going to get Barbie into the show at some point. So well done for that. <laughs> of course I would, wouldn't I? <laughs> <laughs> James, what's your reaction? This has been two years now in the making, hasn't it? What's your reaction to it? Exactly. It's been two years in the making, and the news of, the, of uh, Biden signing the executive order has been in circulation for about, what, six, uh, six months or four months. And the, the, the real executive order is about the same as uh, what it was rumored. So I don't, I don't think this, uh, this have any material impact on secondary market because it made itself pretty clear that it was, the restriction was on the uh, front end of primary markets, VCs and PEs. So secondary market is uh, left out of the question and left out of the ban. And uh, also there is another sign that NASDAQ and SEC uh, was, uh, it, it sometimes was very strict on uh, Chinese uh, tech companies or, or Chinese concept companies being listed in the U.S. 
And in uh, 2021 and in 2020, there was about eight months of period of time uh, each year uh, in which NASDAQ and SEC did not approve a single listing of a Chinese company uh, being listed in the U.S. But right now, I think uh, NASDAQ was pretty uh, relaxed on approving uh, Chinese companies being listed. So again, second, secondary market is not impacted, uh, only, for, uh, only primary markets. So, and what does it do for U.S.-China relations? Does it have any impact or do we just get the usual statement from the foreign ministry uh, criticizing it and then everyone moves on? Yeah, I think, I think it's largely anticipated and uh, the, the, the real impact is, uh, is a long-term impact. Of course, when these VCs and PEs, when they were allowed to invest in Chinese companies, they usually brought data, they brought management experience and industrial uh, experience. But right now, when they are not allowed to invest in Chinese companies, all these things will not be going into uh, the management of Chinese companies. And uh, so that, that's... Uh, that's a very long shot of trying to uh, compress China or, or trying to uh, slow China down. But I, I think uh, it's, yeah, it's a move largely anticipated and I don't, I don't see some, any real repercussions. Okay, well, thank you both very much. Good to hear your thoughts this morning. That's James Wong, Chief Executive Officer at Cathasia Securities. Thank you, Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, for staying awake so late in London. I'm joined now by Ross Feingold, who is Business Development Director at SafePro Group over in Taiwan. Morning, Ross. Good morning. Let me start by asking you the news that's just come out this morning. President Joe Biden has issued an executive order banning U.S. investment into quantum computing, advanced chips and artificial intelligence sectors in China to try and ensure the Chinese military doesn't benefit from American technology and capital. It's going to largely affect private equity and venture capital firms and also U.S. investors in joint ventures. We've been waiting and anticipating this for a long time, Ross. Is it pretty much in line with what was expected? Well, I think you mentioned one of the key points that this has been telegraphed, talked about for a long time by the Biden administration. It's certainly something new for the United States government to regulate outbound investments. I'm sure many of the listeners are aware about the inbound investment review process, and certainly a number of Chinese projects have been stopped in recent years because of that process. But unlike many other countries that do have some kind of outbound investment review, this is new for the United States. So the announcement in recent hours was basically the president and telling the Treasury Department, you got to come up with the specific rules. So now there's going to be a public comment period. And uh, those in the audience who got an issue with this, who might be affected, uh, you, you do have a chance to make a submission uh, and try and, uh, I guess, reduce the impact on your businesses. Uh, but uh, I think when it comes to those key areas that you mentioned, like quantum quantum computing and artificial intelligence, you have to assume that these rules are going to be pretty strict. And uh, uh, again, those who have kind of had a deal with U.S. government regulations should also keep in mind, it, most likely it's going to uh, regulate U.S. persons. It's not just going to be U.S.-based private equity firms, for example. So don't think you're, you're, you're immune simply because you work for a family office of a, of a foreign individual and you're sitting in Hong Kong. So the details are certainly something that anyone who does investing that might affect or that, that's involved in these areas, these, these industry areas, these sectors that might be affected, really needs to pay attention to this. 
Is this, though, the, the issue maybe is that this is the thin edge of the wedge because although the Treasury Department is trying to keep this as narrow and as limited as possible with very clear rules and guidelines, you've got the Republican Party who overnight was slamming this, saying it doesn't go anywhere near um, fast enough in, in terms of restricting investment in China. And you've got some Republicans who want to see a complete ban on investments in secondary market equities and bonds as well. Well, it's certainly easy for for critics, uh, whether Democrats or Republicans are sitting in Congress to say this doesn't go enough, they go far enough. They're not the ones who have to write the rules. Uh, they're not the ones who have to answer to businesses who say that, OK, I get it. You have a national security concern, but here, here are areas that you have to be careful not to restrict because it's what even the Biden administration calls you know, kind of legitimate business. And I, I, I saw that in some of the statements coming out of government officials like, oh, we don't want to affect legitimate business. OK, so what? what is legitimate business. And that mm. really remains to be seen. But there, there is, as you pointed out, there's this element of politics. Uh, it's easy to, to be China critics. Uh, but again, you know, the devil will be in the details. And uh, people, um, you know, especially your audience sitting here in Hong Kong, you know, really need to pay care, careful attention to what are the final rules from the Treasury Department. I mean, I've, people in China have been saying, you know, we don't need American money. Um, what they need is the know-how. Does this restrict China getting the know-how to become more advanced in these, uh, in these sectors? What sort of impact does it have on, on China? That's such an interesting question because very often what's being you know, talked about for the, the, the restriction scope, that, that's the equity investment. It's the cash investment that might mm-hmm. come from investors. It's not necessarily a know-how transfer and private equity firms uh, are not necessarily in the business of, of transferring know-how. They're in the business of making cash investments and bringing their, their management know-how, but not necessarily bringing uh, the patent plans with them, uh, mm-hmm. For e- even if they're already involved in the industry. Now, of course, being involved in, in, in industry, and what I mean is investing in a specific sector, such as AI or quantum computing, means they've already invested in other com- companies, uh, companies that have become successful, and, and that might create uh, collaboration opportunities. Uh, and uh, again, that's another aspect we'll have to see uh, how, how it plays out with the final rulemaking. But uh, you know, this is what happens when government tries to regulate business, mm. right? They say, well, we want, we're, we're, we're concerned about the transfer of the know-how. So what do you do? You, you impose restrictions on people who just make cash investments. But, but look, we also know that but this China, does, it China, does. It so, does, I, mean, I just want to quickly say, China catches up, right? I mean, it, it might take them a lot longer with these kinds of restrictions, but just like with the semiconductor rules, they catch up eventually. But it, this does also restrict joint ventures, doesn't it? Which is the area where if there's a joint venture between, say, an American quantum computing firm and a Chinese one, that's where the know-how uh, could be transferred. So presumably in that particular area, uh, then there is an issue of more than just money. That's right. And uh, yeah, we'll see what the final rulemaking says about about uh, uh, existing joint ventures. Are people going to have to exit them and obviously future joint ventures? What does it do for U.S.-China relations overall? I mean, it's been anticipated for, for two years now. President Biden saying he wants to improve uh, relations with China. So he's been very low key about this uh, executive order, hasn't it? There hasn't been any big ceremony around it or any signing ceremony in the White House. He's just got on with his normal business. Does it change anything in terms of U.S.-China relations, or do both just sides just make their comments and get on with things? Yeah, 
To your point, you announced it in the middle of August when the Chinese leadership are also at their retreat. And uh, we'll see if there's a press conference uh, from from the Chinese foreign ministry or one of the other government agencies today or, or later this week. And of course, they're going to criticize it and say this is this is designed to contain China's rise. So uh, we'll see the same kind of response that we've seen, for example, when semiconductor manufacturing equipment uh, you know, restrictions were imposed on, on the export of that kind of equipment uh, to China. And again, the Biden administration will emphasize uh, this doesn't affect legitimate business. Please buy more wheat and, and, and other stuff that, that's not as cutting edge as quantum computing or AI or, or semiconductor manufacturing equipment. And uh, we'll, we'll see what China says. They might just say, oh, no, thank you. We'll just we'll look to buy our wheat from somewhere else. Okay, let me switch uh, topics and move to something closer to home in Taiwan. Taiwanese semiconductor manufacturer TSMC announced on Tuesday it's going to invest over 10 billion euros. uh, That's about 11 billion US dollars in Germany in return for 5 billion euros in subsidies. TSMC, which is the world's largest chip manufacturer, is going to build and operate the microchip plants together uh, with European automotive supplier Bosch and chip makers Infineon and NXP. They will each hold 10% of of the plant and Taiwan's Taiwan semiconductor manufacturing will own 70%. This is significant, isn't it? Because it's TSMC's first uh, expansion directly into Europe with direct investment there. Sure, it's, it's significant. I mean, it's great news for Germany and it's great news for European semiconductor sector, uh, keeping in mind that it's not uh, latest generation or next generation chips, but it's chips that are good enough for the automobile uh, sector. And uh, you know, it, it's, it's helpful for resiliency. We all uh, have observed the pain of that issue throughout the pandemic period. Uh, so, you know, it, it's hard to criticize this. You know, it really, at first glance, looks like a, a win all around, win for German economy, win for semiconductor development in Europe, win for uh, the customers who will have nearby supply of semiconductors. It takes some of the political pressure off TSMC because they have plants and new plants in Japan and the United States. Now they're spreading it around to Europe as well. Now, of course, uh, the, I, I hesitate to say they're a loser, but you know, the taxpayer is putting up significant subsidies here. So uh, although there are a lot of winners here, uh, somebody is paying for this and it is the taxpayer. Mm. It's also significant in just how much uh, TSMC has changed over the five years because, you know, outside of Taiwan five years ago, no one would have heard of this company, but it's basically become a global company, hasn't it? Because it, it used to manufacture everything in Taiwan, more specifically everything in northern Taiwan. Um, you know, all its manufacturing was done there. Now it's manufacturing in Europe, it's manufacturing uh, in the US, it's looking elsewhere as well. Um, it's really changed the company, hasn't it? That's true, but again, it's it's not its latest uh, or even next generation ships. Those the and in fact, in recent months, TSMC has announced, announced significant investments at home in Taiwan uh, mm-hmm. for for future uh, next generation ships. And ultimately, because the number of fabs it operates in Taiwan, the the, the fabs in Japan, the United States, and Europe are still a, as of now, it's still a small amount of its overall capacity. And yes, you're right. Five years ago. This might have seen seemed you know, unlikely. And TSMC ha- has always been clear. We have uh, a supply chain. We have our talent pool. 
uh, we're very happy manufacturing in Taiwan and manufacturing elsewhere is not competitive. And then when these governments started to say, well, you know, we really would like you to uh, do a little bit of manufacturing in our countries, uh, TSMC said, well, uh, where's the cash? And now the cash has come in the form of these massive subsidies. And even with that, TSMC has still made it very clear they're not hiding the fact. They've said, you know, we, we wouldn't be doing this without the subsidies. Mm. So if anywhere else in the world still wants the TSMC fab, you better ante up the cash. <laughs> but it, it, at the end of the day, though, isn't it uh, TSMC's most sophisticated chips, its most advanced chips, they're still being made in Taiwan. They're not going to be made overseas. Uh, the, the company has insisted on that, and based on their investment, uh, the details of their investment announcements as far as what they're going to be building here in Taiwan as well as overseas, uh, we, we should take them at their word. But presumably this is the model now going forward for, for TSMC and other manufacturers as well, set up joint ventures in overseas companies with, with local manufacturers, open plants there, as you say, with, with subsidies. But this seems to be the new model. Uh, yes, but it does have another interesting aspect, which is playing out in Arizona, which is it still requires a large number of uh, employees to come from home office to, to work there. So it's been you know, re- reported about trouble uh, finding employees in Arizona uh, and, and the culture clash issues as well. Uh, so we'll see if that also happens in Europe. And do Taiwanese people, do Taiwanese employees want to go over to Europe and the US? Are they happy to do so? Oh, they're certainly happy to go over to the U.S. Uh, because uh, t- you know, Taiwan has a cl- close you know, relationship with the U.S., cultural uh, and, and political and other other reasons. A lot of Taiwanese have, have gone back and forth after studying and working in the U.S., come back to Taiwan. Uh, that, that relationship does not exist yet with Germany, but uh, presumably there'll be a bunch of employees who will be happy to take that opportunity and maybe uh, make a life for them in Europe. So the issue of- often comes up as well here in Taiwan is whether or not this would cause a brain drain of Taiwan's most talented semiconductor engineers. And uh, you just just don't know, right? It remains to be seen how many uh, employees go over there once the plants start operating and then look for pathways to remain, whether uh, uh, because they ultimately qualify for residency or they switch employers and get work work, uh, visas with another employer. Mm. Okay, well, very interesting. Thank you very much, Ross, for your thoughts there. That's Ross Feingold, who is Business Development Director at SafePro Group over in Taiwan. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more details, business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On tomorrow's program, I'm joined by Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities, and Nitin Dialdas, Chief Investment Officer at Mandarin Capital. With a view from Australia is Toby Lawson, the CEO at Staten Partners. Bye for now. Money Talk. <laughs>